Warning, this episode contains strong language and unmitigated goblin shit. Listener discretion is advised. Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniak's. Listeners, I'm super excited today to welcome probably one of my oldest friends to have ever appeared on this podcast with the exception of Robin Duncan, Ivy Noel Weir. Ivy, welcome to the show! Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I've, like... I think you've been on my wish list of guests since I started this podcast. So uh, it's wild to me to be like, oh, yeah, I'm actually I'm, I'm doing that. Yeah, we did it. We did it. We, we started made playing it magic together when we were 15. Look at us now. I know. <laughs> Fantastic. And buck wild. Absolutely buck wild. Um, so I... I could have started this show out with either the didn't make it or the did make it, because you're going to be reading to us out of the novel manuscript of archival quality. Yes. Yes. I mean, it didn't make it as a novel. Yes, but but archival (laughs) quality made it as a story that you can now go and buy in stores. So, yeah. Uh, And we will get into that afterwards, but is there anything uh, we need to know before we get into the reading? Um, I mean, just to to set the table of the history of this, um, I, and you know, also a little throwback since we're both from from Philly, um, I started working on this story when I was working at the, um, the Muter Museum in Philadelphia as... So good. (laughs) An archival intern, and, um, I originally wrote it as this, this novel, and we'll talk more about what eventually happened with it. Um, (laughs) But there's definitely some changes. So if anybody who's listening has happened to read uh, archival quality, you know, there's definitely some, some things that changed and some names that are different. So don't get confused. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, ready when you are. Okay funny because this is actually the pitch that I sent to the Clarion Writers Workshop. (laughs) So it has like my synopsis and everything at the beginning. All right. So this is a a reading from The Archivist, which was the original title. I skipped supper and slept an uneasy, dreamless sleep, punctuated with sudden awakenings where I would lie on my back feeling paralyzed and stare at the ceiling until I managed to slip away again. I awoke feeling completely unrested at dawn, and knowing I would never fall back asleep, slid out of bed and prepared myself for my first day in the archives. Dr. Zimmer was supposed to meet me at nine, so I killed some time by unpacking my few belongings, which looked anachronistic in the context of the apartment. (laughs) I was on the brink of throwing them all back in the box when I heard a door slam below me. I slipped on my shoes and went to investigate, desperate to see another living person after a night alone in the museum. Abiyomi was standing on the catwalk, and he looked startled as I came down the stairs. There's something vaguely feline about his manner, and as he tensed, I half expected his hair to bristle up. <laughs> ah, Miss Holloway, he said. I quite forgot you were here. It's all right, I didn't mean to scare you, I said. What are you doing here so early? It was only just after seven. Just uh, checking up on things. We've had a few accidents lately, things falling from the storage shelves. I believe it might be rodents. He shivered, clearly upset at the prospect. But how was your first night here? Fine, I said, unsure of whether or not it counted as a lie. <laughs> this place is a little creepy when it's empty. I know, Abayomi said, dropping his uptight Victorian gentleman routine only slightly. I used to get pretty scared myself. Late at night, you imagine you're hearing things. <laughs> you lived here before? I asked, surprised. Briefly, he said. Why didn't you mention it? I don't live here anymore, so it seemed irrelevant. I found myself feeling annoyed with him. He straightened up and smiled. His smile was shockingly charming. Would you like to join me in the commissary for breakfast? 
I nodded. The commissary was a low-ceilinged kitchen in the basement of the building. A few old kitchen appliances and a formica counter occupied one wall, and a couple of plastic tables used the rest of the space. Abayomi opened the door to the fridge and removed a box of toaster pastries. Of something of a sweet tooth, he said conspiratorially. He warmed them in a rickety microwave, then placed one on an ornate porcelain plate and handed it to me. I took a bite, and the sweetness made my teeth hurt. He dug into his with obvious delight. (laughs) So what made you move? I asked. He paused in his chewing for a moment, then swallowed slowly. It wasn't working out, he said. It is that simple. Eat your pastry. I'll get to it, I persisted, but what wasn't working out? Me living here, he said, obviously trying to give me circular answers as a quick way to end the conversation. Abba, I said, using the familiar term in order to deliberately annoy him. Come on, what happened? Cecilia, I like you, but I don't wish to have this conversation. Now I can get up and leave, or we can drop the subject and enjoy a pleasant breakfast as newfound colleagues. (laughs) He looked me directly in the eye as he said this, challenging me to back down. Fine, I said, trying not to sound too put out. He smiled. Wonderful. We spent the rest of breakfast in an awkward silence, punctuated occasionally by Aviomi asking me a question and me giving a terse answer. Around 8.45, (laughs) I stood up. I have to meet Dr. Zimmer now, I said. He nodded. Please don't hesitate to ask me if you need help finding your way around, he said. I turned to leave. Cecilia, he said suddenly, I hope you'll forgive me for our disagreement. But really, some things are better left unsaid. (laughs) He paused, then continued, and unexplored. (laughs) Dr. Zimmer was waiting outside the locked doors, even though it was a full ten minutes early. Cecilia, my dear, he said jovially, like we were old friends, how was your first night in the old castle? Fine, I said, no complaints. Excellent, he said, turning to unlock the door. Excited to begin work? Definitely, I lied. I was not very excited at the prospect of the cold gray room, the staircase, the catwalk, the tiny isolated office. Inside, the archive was still a crowded mess, and I felt a sense of dread creeping over me at the daunting nature of the task ahead. Let's start, Dr. Zimmer said, turning about and apparently choosing a direction at random here. <laughs> he lifted a stack of five or so small boxes. These should keep you busy. Take them back to your quarters and begin work in the office at seven. The rest of the day is your own. Feel free to explore the museum or leave the grounds for a bit, whatever you like, as long as you are in that office at seven this evening. Understood? I nodded. Good girl. Uh, I'll have Abba meet you here tomorrow morning. Till then, he said, and turned and left. I stood there clutching the box. The museum seemed to have this effect on me. Suddenly I would find myself stuck to the floor like my shoes were sunk in concrete. I struck myself to break the spell and walked across to the library. Holly was sitting at her desk and only looked up from her papers when I set the pile of boxes down with a thud. Cecilia, she said, more overjoyed to see me than I expected or was really comfortable with. (laughs) How are you settling in? All right, I said. I had breakfast with Avayomi this morning. Toaster strudels? She smiled knowingly. I laughed and nodded. I think he has a little crush on you, she said, her smile widening. I think your boyfriend could tell that, too. (laughs) I blushed. The idea of Avayomi having anything as plebeian as a crush seemed ridiculous. I really don't think so, I said definitively. Holly put her hands up and surrender. So, what do you do all day? I asked. It doesn't seem like you guys see a lot of regular patrons. No, not so many. There's a few medical students that come by regularly, history enthusiasts, but most days go by without me really seeing anybody at all. She looked out the high window wistfully. That's why I'm so glad you're here, she said, turning back to me. So (laughs) nice to have a girlfriend. Abba's no fun at all. I had never been called a girlfriend before. I nodded with a forced smile. And you two are the only employees? I asked. Hmm. Holly nodded. Well, and Hedvika, the woman at the desk, she added, though I needed no explanation. Do you want tea? She asked. Sure. A few minutes later, as we sat sipping our Earl Grey, I decided to broach the subject of Abayomi's relocation. So, Abba, he used to live here too, right? I asked, trying to seem nonchalant. Holly raised an eyebrow. Yeah, but that was before I worked here, though. He lived in the apartment across the hall from yours. That was before the renovation, so it was a lot less nice. What made him leave? I asked as innocently as possible, like I didn't really care at all. (laughs) He doesn't like to talk about it, she said, then mimed a zipper closing across her mouth, so I don't talk for him. My frustration sprang to life again. I tried to calm myself. 
How does the museum run with only three employees? Slowly, Holly said with a laugh. <laughs> the board pretty much does everything. Abba, Hetty, and I just keep the place running day to day. Best we can, anyway. The board? Yeah, the board of trustees, or whatever they're really called. They acquire all the materials from the museum, handle all the money, maintain the building. They're in here every day, some of them at least. Up there, she pointed to the ceiling. There's another floor and we're not allowed on it. Everything is very secretive, she said, mimicking a spooky tone from some B-grade horror movie and wiggling her fingers. <laughs> you don't think that's strange? I asked. Holly shrugged. I mean, you signed the confidentiality agreement same as I did. The stuff in this museum is really personal. These were people's lives. I was worried that Holly might actually become emotional as she said this. It sounded so genuine. They're most personal details. I can't imagine acquiring it as easy. I don't think I'd really want to know the way they do it. Fair enough, I said, exhaling and leaning backwards in my chair so the legs came off the floor. But this seemed to bring Holly a lot of anxiety, so I lowered them again. <laughs> so, Kyle is handsome, Holly said. Obviously, she was the type to enjoy gossip, which was not exactly my forte. I made an affirmative noise. How long have you been together? Two years, I said. Wow, wonderful. He seems really nice. I wondered how she could possibly have garnered that impression from his rather volatile interaction with her and Abayomi the day before, but I simply repeated the positive hum. I wasn't very aware of myself back then, or grateful for what I had. Things seemed less important to me than they are now. At that point, I did love Kyle, and I did think he was great, amazing, but I had fooled myself into thinking it wasn't alright to love someone, at least not publicly. Hmm. Well, I should get back to work, Holly said, perhaps sensing my discomfort. What are your plans for today? Unpacking, I guess, I said, hmm. since I can't start working until seven. This arrangement is so weird. I think, Holly said, lowering her voice to a whisper and leaning forward that Dr. Zimmer doesn't want the board to know what you're doing. She looked up towards the ceiling as though the mysterious board members could hear us through the floor. Why not? I don't know. But he pretty much all but told me that was the reason for the weird hours. She shrugged. Well, I said, for a lack of anything better, have fun with work. I decided to head back up to my room and try to finish unpacking, but instead I ended up sitting in a circle of half-empty boxes staring into space. What had made Abayomi move, and why couldn't he talk about it? What was the deal with the Board of Trustees? I felt my curiosity over the things I had learned today boil over into frustration. Why is everything here so goddamn secretive? I said aloud, <laughs> scaring myself with the suddenness of my own voice in the stiflingly silent room. The question was met with a loud scrape across the door to my apartment. I jumped. Hello? I demanded. No response. I stood, walked to the door, and flung it open to reveal nothing but the hallway. Who's there? I asked, though I knew I would get no response. I stepped out into the hallway. It felt a good ten degrees cooler than my room. I peered up and down, but saw nothing, no one. I went back inside. Do you want me to keep going? Is that... I think that's good? a great place to stop. <laughs> cool. Oh my gosh. I So, like... You know, I've read archival quality, uh, like, a half dozen times oh. at this point. I uh, I bought it right before I changed jobs and was, like, in this, like, really chaotic sort of situation in my life where, like, we were moving and, uh, and we were both changing jobs and, like, it felt very comforting to see some of that chaos reflected in somebody else <laughs> uh and then i just keep returning to it because it's spooky and i like a gothic in general and like i just i just finished reading uh caitlin starling's the death of jane lawrence oh which is i'm reading that right now literally reading that right now <laughs> so good so good and just like Hearing hearing this version of ar archival quality just was, like, giving me so many feelings about how much I enjoyed that book <laughs> and how much I enjoyed ar ar archival quality. And, like, that last little bit just gave me, like, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven vibes of, like, you know, oh, something something's at the door. Let's... <laughs> 
go out and see, except, you know, Shell isn't a dramatic bitch who's like, deep into that darkness (laughs) peering long, I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's so fun to hear the thing that became archival quality, and, uh, like, I knew, you know, because we're, like, friends and follow each other's lives, even if we're not, like, in super contact Mm -hmm. all the time, like, I knew that you had been at the Meter Museum, and so, like, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this thing, that's the reason for this thing. Yeah. Um, but for people who, and obviously I'll have links in the show notes to all this stuff, but for people who don't know about the Muter Museum, can you give us a a brief pitch of that amazing, creepy place? So, you know, Hillary and I are both from Philadelphia, which is a city that, um, loves weird monster... We love... Weird, a, awful things that yeah. nobody else understands. <laughs> so, the Muter Museum is actually a historical medical museum. Um, it is more often uh, <laughs> referred to as Medical Oddities Museum. Um, it's a collection of uh, medical specimens, many of which are, you know, uh, unusual, rare, um mm-hmm. Lots of two-headed things. Uh, I think the thing that always makes people the most upset about that place is all the drawers with all the stuff that's been removed that people swallowed. Yep. That's an upsetting (laughs) set of drawers. Yes, Um, it is. But it's in this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful old building in Philadelphia. Absolutely gorgeous. It used to be a college. um, Like a a physician's college. Yep, right around the corner from the first unit. It's such a gorgeous building such a cool museum um and the actual museum and i always feel like i need to really levy this caveat whenever anyone talks about archival quality the actual museum is run incredibly ethically um mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very ethical they're very concerned with ethics and and you know responsibility and they have a lot devoted to public education they have really great youth programs so it's an awesome yep. thing in philadelphia and i always tell people that if they're Again, caveat, not squeamish. Uh-huh. <laughs> they should go check it out if they're in the city. Yeah. And my my recollection, I haven't been in a while, is that they really, like, try to uh, honor the stories of a lot of the yeah. specimens that are there. Absolutely. As opposed to uh, slight spoilers for arch- archival quality, bad things happen. <laughs> it's really, you know, they try with the provenance of their specimens to really, like give you know a story life i mean they were Mm -hmm. they were people um except for the ones that are like animals but those are also people just (laughs) you know smaller people in different shapes you know it's not always possible because it wasn't the nature of old-timey uh doctors to really (laughs) keep a provenance of a lot of those things um Mm -hmm. They would be like, you know, hey, I got this prisoner cadaver and I used the skin to make you a wallet because I like you, other doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, It really is a really fantastic place if you are not squeamish. Yeah. If If you're into body horror at all and you are in Philadelphia, please do take a visit. It's one of my favorite places in the world, which is such a weird place to have. It's yeah. <laughs> oh, that's totally fair. It's also uh, the bike shop is no longer there, but it is just down the street from the bike shop I worked in right after college, which is again like just oh, we we had two locations. One of them was right by the Muter Museum. The other one was. Right by Eastern State Penitentiary. Man, you guys had a real market you were trying to get tracked. In terms of like, yeah, Philadelphia is an old city. It's got a lot of fucked up shit in it. Yep. It's like when people talk to me about Gritty, you know, when I'm not in Philadelphia, I'm like, that Mm -hmm. is only our most recent monster. Like, (laughs) 
like have people never heard of the Philly fanatic? The the fanatic is a menace. The fanatic hit that lady with a t-shirt gun. (laughs) (laughs) I I was just reminded of that because I fell down a Wikipedia hole yesterday about something else and it led me to t-shirt cannons and then it was like in popular culture. The Philly fanatic once injured a woman. Of of course. Of course. There there is an entire Wikipedia list page that is just uh, Pennsylvania politicians who have been convicted of crimes. And if that's not the most Pennsylvania thing possible, (laughs) I don't know. We did it. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, So, Archival Quality started out as a novel, uh, which you submitted uh used as your submission material for uh the clarion workshop the archival quality that is in stores today right now is a graphic novel that you did with steens whose uh artwork is my profile picture still on twitter i think i commissioned that from them in uh i don't know whenever their old whackham broke like 24 15 or something some some wild time like that but uh can you talk a little bit about the uh about the process of how it became this graphic novel so yeah i had been working on it i feel like it's such a meandering path this book (laughs) because i my undergrad degree is in fine art um and i was studying photography And I was working specifically on a body of work that was about medical oddities, Mm -hmm. which is how I came to be at the Muter, um, because it was an internship that really aligned with what I was doing in undergrad. And um, so I had started working on this novel as this sort of escape from all this, like, really hyper academic (laughs) thinking about these these images um, and the ethics behind them and all this stuff. So... I didn't really know that I would do anything with it. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to submit it to the Clarion Workshop because I feel like maybe Neil Gaiman was like one of the teachers there that year. And I don't know, Mm -hmm. I was like 22 and I thought, you know, yeah, I'll get in. (laughs) Um, So I submitted it, did not get in. (laughs) Um, And then I was... Point number one. Yeah. And then I was like, blah, screw this book. It's terrible. (laughs) Um, and I, like, shelved it. Yep. I, too, have been 22. (laughs) Yeah. So then, like, a year passes, I pick it back up, I just, like, I can't leave it alone. I don't know. Like, it just keeps nagging at me. Like, at this point, I'm long gone from the muter, you know, and just, like, I'm graduating college, I'm not really working in this, like, medical oddities image space Mm -hmm. anymore. But I still, like, I just can't get rid of this idea, and I just keep thinking about these characters, and so I just keep messing with it. Like, every couple months, I open it up, and I, like, write more, or I change something, or, you know, mm-hmm. I start changing characters. Like, you know, in this one, we have Cecilia, and ours, she's Celeste. Like, they just start kind of growing and changing. Around this time, I got a job in a comic book store. Um, mm-hmm. I was working part-time in a public library while I was doing my master's degree in library science. And I got another part-time job at a comic book store. Um, at the time, the group, the Valkyries, still existed yep. um, for women and non-binary folks that work in, worked in comic book shops. And so I joined that. I think I was, like, number 25. I was one of, like, the original ones. So mm-hmm. I joined that. I met Steen's. And so we would all, like, share what we were working on, you know, Um, because a lot of people, the people in the group were also, like, aspiring comic book people. And I'm going to say, some of them are, like, huge comic book people now, like, Teeny Howard and Vita Ayala. Like, we were in there as just counter jockeys, and now, you know, they're, like, running the game. (laughs) Like, Steens has a friggin' Eisner, so. (laughs) It's like, you know, so we would all share work and talk and all this stuff, and I saw Steens's art and i was like i like everything about this person's art it was just Mm -hmm. so unique to me like it was so warm and inviting and fun and like just you know i was like i want and i 
Steens and I were talking at that point, just like in the group. And I was like, mm-hmm. I want to do something with this person. And I was like, what if I don't have any good ideas? <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, I was starting to think about making comics because I was surrounded by them all the time, mm-hmm. you know? And so I was like, well, what if I take this book that has been nagging at me for the past three years Mm -hmm. and what if we work on it together so i sent steens like a facebook message and i was like look i have an idea and do you want to do it as a comic and i don't know what i'm doing like at all (laughs) and they were like yeah (laughs) so originally it was gonna be a web comic Mm -hmm. i Um, remember yeah. When you first announced, like, hey, we're going to do this webcomic and had, like, a couple of, like, teaser images from the first, yeah. you know, five, ten pages uh, of, like, Cell in the Diner, uh, like, no dialogue bubbles, nothing like that, just, like, this stuff. And I was like, I am hyped for this, <laughs> like, immediately started following Steens on Twitter uh, and was just like, okay. I'm going to so, check back on this every week. <laughs> so we were doing this webcomic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We were like, we're going to do it. We like announced it. We were like, we're going to put this webcomic out. We, Steen started banking pages, and we had like a goal for like how much we wanted to bank to like roll it out. We got like the Tumblr page set up and everything. Mm-hmm. And then Oni Press was like, hey, we're going to take unagented submissions for a very limited amount of time from like first-time creators, you know, you don't have to have an in in the industry, whatever, you mm-hmm. can just send us submissions. So we were like, well, should we send what we have? We have enough stuff. We have, with, like, I think they were looking for, like, ten finished pages or something. We were like, well, we have it. So, you know, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> right. And then they bought it. <laughs> and then they bought it. <laughs> and they bought it. So we weren't expecting that. Um... Steens had done comics, like mini comics and stuff, but not like a mm-hmm. full-length graphic novel. I had done nothing. <laughs> <laughs> My background was in academic writing. I thought I was going to be an art critic. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we just like, we had to do it at that point, And it mm-hmm. was, you know. Well, made your bed. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we uh, we knuckled down and we, we did worked on it really hard for a very long time. And then it became the graphic novel that is out today. Yeah, <laughs> which is so great. And I, I remember at some point, like, you know, I was still checking maybe every other week, but I was like, still checking in, like archivalquality.com or whatever it was. <laughs> and then at some point you were like, posted the like, Actually, we're gonna sell this now. Yeah. It's gonna be a real book. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> this is amazing. This is awesome. It was like, we felt so bad because, I mean, you know how publishing is. Like, mm-hmm. you can't talk about whatever's going on until all the ink is dry and, like, sales and marketing are cool to sign off on it. So, like, we just had this thing. We kept being like, we can't tell you why we didn't start yeah. this. <laughs> We didn't just abandon it. There's uh-huh. other things happening. <laughs> yeah, this is this is like I'm I'm in a number of like writer slacks and friends with tons of writer on writers on Twitter and like have, you know, like group chats and stuff and it's always like, oh, someone just had uh, will just post like secret cheer and we're all just like We're secretly very excited for you, and at some point you'll be able to tell us about it. (laughs) Yep. Vague congrats is usually the, uh... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, And and the the end result is, you know, there's this graphic novel that you can go and buy, and uh, then from there, uh, you have a number of other graphic novels... And comics and other things that exist now. Yeah. Uh, and, like, what a wild door to open. Yeah. It was definitely, like, 
you know, I was looking over your like pre-show questions and mm-hmm. like, and I, I just did this interview actually with fan base press too, where they were like talking to me about like quotas. They're like, what's your like quota for pages? And then looking at your like submissions and like mm-hmm. all this stuff. And like, sometimes I feel like I'm a really bad writer <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like I just, I don't know, like I'm just winging it every day. <laughs> And, like, you know, I see all these other writers, and I'm like, boy, I wish I could be, like, organized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I have... I I just set it back up for this week after, like, I, I had a buck wild uh, week. The listeners, the week that this was recorded, uh, there was just, like, crazy windstorm in, in Oakland over the weekend, and the tree outside of our house just fell down onto the power lines and we didn't have power or internet for a day and a half like wild ass shit but the point of this is i have to have an hour set aside in my calendar every day that's just labeled creative time so that i can sit down at my computer and either like do podcast stuff do podcast editing whatever or just like write some words and yeah like i write like during not nanorimo time i write between like 200 and a thousand words a day like that that's all i mean i've got a full-time job so like yeah yeah i mean that's part of it and like you know steens is like full-time creator now mm-hmm. we were doing archival quality i was in grad school i had a full-time job steen's had a full-time job yep you know like we were squeezing in the time when we could you yep. know um and i mean i'm much i'm much more organized now and and you know a much um <laughs> more responsible author <laughs> <laughs> and i think a much better creative partner i mean steen's and i are are best friends like Mm -hmm. i think this is also the part that uh is interesting is out of this not only came this book but also like steens who i love um Mm -hmm. like i was maid of honor at their wedding you know (laughs) like um so like we i think we came through this catalyst of fire of working together on this and that like we're just like bonded now Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there were definitely times when we were like arguing or like not seeing eye to eye but it made me a much better creative partner and you know moving forward i think that every new comic or graphic novel i've i've done mm-hmm. i've become better at being a collaborator which i think is the goal if you're a writer of comics who doesn't draw is just like you constantly need to be like leveling up <laughs> that collaborator yeah. status being a better partner you know yeah. um, <laughs> uh so i've i've had a couple of other guests on this show who have uh, written comics, but I haven't really talked comics with them. I, I know Sarah Gailey's Eat the Rich didn't come out until, like, fall-ish, summer, fall of 2021, like, after the last time I talked to them on the show. So uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the differences between writing just straight-up prose and writing for comics. Because yeah. I think that's, like, a pretty mysterious thing for pe- for people who aren't, like, you know, writer and artist yeah. type people. Well, I think there's also a big misconception among prose writers, myself included, when I was very young and... Very young. When I started Archival Quality and I was uh-huh. younger. Very young in comics years before the industry had aged me 50 right. years. Um, yep. <laughs> You know, where you think it's the same. You're like, well, I can write prose, so I can do this. No, this is very different. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, the main thing, and, and you know, I just sort of touched on this, is that you have to remember that if you're a writer and you're not drawing it, like if you're just the writer of a series, you are a collaborator. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there is a lot of ego in people who come to comics from prose sometimes where they're like well i'm the star because i do the writing and it begins Mm -hmm. with the words (laughs) um but you know it's a team like it's a team sport this is always what i say about comics it's team sport every single person involved is as important as every other person because the end product would not exist without any one of those people Mm -hmm. um 
you know, artist is a huge lift in comics. Artist does, if you're a writer, the artist is doing three, five, ten times more work than you are. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you need, your goal should always be to make their job as tolerable as possible. Right. <laughs> the other thing is that thinking about, it's one thing to go from like, okay, you're creating things in prose and you're, you know, talking, you can kind of explore a whole scene, you know, in, in mm-hmm. words. You have to show, not tell in comics. That's one thing. The second right. thing is that it's not the same as screenwriting because you don't have motion. So, like, I think that the biggest thing I see when I see, like, scripts from people who have just started is that they will put multiple actions in, like, one panel, right? Mm-hmm. They'll be like... She crosses the room and picks up the cup. Well, no. Nope, <laughs> She's either that's, crossing that's the room or picking panels. up the cup. <laughs> you know? Like, it's not... It, don't, it doesn't move. So, you have to really think visually. Um, and you have to think statically. One of the things that I've started doing as I've started, you know, as I've written more comics since Archival Qualities, I actually thumbnail my own scenes while I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I cannot draw. Like, I know that earlier I said I went to art school. I want to reiterate, it was for photography. Yep. So, like, I can't draw at all. Um, but, like, even just, like, stick figures. Like, something so you get an idea of, like, okay, can this even work? Like, mm-hmm. you know, am I asking for something that's not going to read well? Right. And the other part of it is that even if you think, like, I've nailed it, this page is fine. If the artist comes back to you and is like, this page is not fine. <laughs> like, you gotta listen. Because they right. know better than you do in this context, you know? Um, but I think that's really the, the beauty of it, is that, like, it is so collaborative. And mm-hmm. that's the part of it that I really love and that I really, like, strive for. Um, you know, it's, it's different because I've been on a couple work for hire projects recently where I definitely didn't have as much Mm -hmm. uh communication with the artist but like you know i want to always prioritize that like i don't ever want it to feel like i'm dictating Mm -hmm. in a script um you know it's all open for discussion (laughs) right yeah and i i imagine that you know since you are writing comic pages that uh and you have to think about like or the artist somebody has to think about like where the fold happens where the page turn happens that that can really influence you know what are you gonna have a full page spread like that all influences how your prose comes together too yeah oh absolutely it's a physical object i mean even if you're reading it digitally it's Mm -hmm. you know digital comics really paginate very similarly to the physical ones um and that's really honestly like where an editor mm-hmm. <laughs> comes in because you know like it's funny so i just the last issue came out last week bountiful garden that was the series that i just finished with mad cave um mm-hmm. and on that one steens was actually my editor nice. um it was the first time that i worked with them as an editor they're an amazing editor by the way like you need a comic book editor I would say this even if we weren't Biffles. Like, yeah. <laughs> Steve's an amazing editor. Um, but it's like, there were definitely moments working on that series where this was the first time I had worked in single-issue format. Everything else I had done had been graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Um, where they would be like, you know, this has to have, like, more punch at the end. Like, you have to think about, like, not only is the reader going to not read this story for a month, Right? Mm -hmm. Like, they're going to get it, and then a month is going to pass, and then they're going to get to the next part. You know, you have to make them want to take that journey to the next part in the next month. You know, Mm -hmm. so much relies on the page turn. Um, You know, cutting conversations off, you know, with a page turn can be really difficult. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. there's so much timing, pacing, physicality to comics um, that you know, it's all part of the process and it's, it's all stuff that you kind of only learn by doing it right? <laughs> and reading a lot of comics and reading a lot of comics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think that even more so than any other like 
writing pursuit that like you have to you have to study the medium you have to like know what's happening which is not to say like you can't do something that's like wildly stylistically you know chancy or whatever because you always can you just have to be able to execute on it yeah you know and it's i think that reading comics and reading really broadly in comics is very Mm -hmm. important um I think it always surprises people when I do interviews, they talk about, like, who's, like, your big influences in comics, and I always say Romika Takahashi and Ayazawa, uh-huh. but, <laughs> like, I think that, you know, a lot of my storytelling technique is coming from manga. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> It's true. It's um, true. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't have a leg to stand on, like, a lot of my, like especially my horror storytelling comes mostly from Junji Ito. Yeah. And I, with a side of Mike Mignola. Right. Like, oh, delicious meal. Um, <laughs> you know, but Mike Mignola was also a huge influence on me. You know, Hellboy was huge, huge, huge. Probably the series that made me ever want to make comics. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, the way I write, the way I think about building character, the way I think about how conversations should flow, a lot of that comes from manga because I feel like I really like to work in these very small kind of like moments with characters. Mm-hmm. And that's such a it's such a manga thing, you know, yeah. but then, you know, when I'm working on something like Bountiful Garden and I want it to be like pulpy and sort of bombastic, you know, then I'm turning to like Western comics, you know, yeah. like you just... Or, you know, Secret Garden and, and Anne of West Philly, like, reading all the... I mean, we are in, in an embarrassment of riches of amazing middle-grade comics right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, just being... That's where I feel like I read my contemporaries, the other people that are putting out books right now, and I'm like, what a time to be alive! <laughs> Everything yeah. is good! I know, I'm, I'm just thinking about, like, most of the comics I've read recently have been, like... Like, Molly Knox Ostertag stuff. Or, like, uh, what is it? The Prince and the Dressmaker. Yeah. I mean, I just finished... I mean, recently I've read The, the Magic Fish and mm-hmm. Tide Song, and I'm just like, these are people that are just, like, out there just, just killing the game. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, just reading really broadly. And I think that that's something that people who want to break into, like, just Kate books, you know, they just mm-hmm. want to... They want to write Batman, like, that's the end goal. Right. You know, aren't necessarily thinking they need to go and, and read really broadly. But when I think about some of my favorite Gotham stories, like Gotham Academy, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so manga, you know? Yeah. Um, such a great book. <laughs> and, yeah, like, I just, uh, I think as with so much, uh, as with so much else, that there is so much depth, even if we're talking, like, the traditional big two superhero yeah. comics like you know what what you think of and even like i'm just thinking like the you know the cartoons of our youth like even yeah. then like they were doing wild ass stuff sometimes with like just random like compilation episodes with the batman the animated series like that one episode that's just the villains going around, like, doing shit, and yeah. Batman's not in it at all. I think that, you know, when I say, like, read broadly, it's not even... So, like, it is partially to educate yourself on how, like, the physicality of comics works and how narrative visual storytelling works, but it's also just to see that, like, there's... You can do anything. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the beauty of the medium is that it is that. It's a medium and, and not a genre, right? You know? So, right. like... People are doing all kinds of stuff across this huge spectrum of, like, you know, really artsy, out there, like, conceptual to, like, your classic, like, beat-em-up cape mm-hmm. books to, you know, like, really sweet middle grade to, like, you know, it's it's such a ecosystem to explore and, like, figure out what inspires you in it. Mm-hmm. Um we are living in a, a great age for comics. There's there's yeah. so many good ones that like you you'll find something you like, I think. This yep. is the librarian in me. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was also just thinking like it's the it's the same 
you know, obviously in, in like, short fiction spaces, but also uh, it, it's hard for me not to draw some comparisons with, like, what video games are doing right now, where, like, mm-hmm. it's just an explosion of indies all over the place, and, like, not just, like, you know, oh, you know, you have to go find this weird Flash game and whatever, like, you know, I can play the hottest indies right now on my Switch. Like, yeah. it's that sort of thing where it's, like, the the market has opened to the point where everybody can get that, and that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And be inspired by it, you know? And yeah. I think that just, that growth promotes more growth, so. Yeah, and, like, and, and to be able to see the diversity of what is happening in the space and the diversity of people who are getting to make it happen in that space. Definitely. So, uh, I just heard this weird sound and this blue police box showed up in my office, uh, in the podcasting studio. And, uh, I was wondering if we could take a step into this time machine and go back. If there was anything that you would like to tell young, naive writer, naive artist, Ivy, that you wish you had known then. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> you know, it's funny because I feel like the person I am now is almost fundamentally unrecognizable to me. Then, but <laughs> she'd be like, "What, what are you, you talking you about? To... You've still got bangs. <laughs> you still listen to Death Cab for Cutie." Hey, <laughs> Death Cab till I die. Um, <laughs> still got bangs. Primary personality trait. Um, but you know, I think that. What I would tell her is, like, it doesn't have to be so serious all the time. (laughs) I mean, like, I think that's really it. Like, uh, you know, it's so weird to, like, talk about what your therapist told you. (laughs) But, like, (laughs) when I was working on archival quality, I was, you know, talking to my therapist about it. And she was like, well, you're funny. And I was like, no, I'm not. And she was like, well, you are funny. And I was like, she's like, why don't you use that in your writing? And I was like, I don't know, because I only know how to write sad stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the biggest gift I gave myself as a writer was that freedom to be like, Mm -hmm. you know what? It doesn't all have to be a bummer all the time. (laughs) Like, you know, get some levity. in. People need levity, you know? People need levity. People need Uh, levity. Now more than ever. Oh, God, yeah, right now, especially. But, like, you know, even in archival quality, which is a very serious, deals with very serious themes, mm-hmm. you know, there is humor in there. A lot of that is because Steens is so good at, like, facial expressions mm-hmm. that, like, she's, like, just amazing with the, like, you know, Jim on the office look at the camera type moment yeah. with characters' facial expressions. But, like, you know... I mean, there are jokes in there. I think that it, it, being able to just, like, let it go, that, like, it doesn't all need to be seven generations of Nebraskan dirt farmers. Like, you can, you know, you can write something funny, you can write something lighthearted, you can, you know, bring levity even to a serious topic. Like, I think that's, that's the biggest gift I've given myself. Mm-hmm. in the last decade of my life is just to be like it's just just chill yeah. a little bit <laughs> and like you can be making serious art without it having to be bleak and grim all the yeah. time you can convey a message and that's not saying that you don't need things to be bleak and grim some of the time sometimes you want things to be bleak and grim many of the books that I read personally are incredibly bleak and Grim. All I watch, other than trashy reality television, are what my husband calls my murder shows, which are like Broadchurch, The Fall, mm-hmm. just like the grimmest British police procedurals. You know, yep. like sometimes you need that, you know. But I mean, that's the beauty of the storytelling ecosystem is that there's room for all of those things, mm-hmm. you know. And you can tell just as poignant a story with levity, with lightness, you right. know. Or even just reflecting the way things are in life, which is that sometimes they're a bummer and sometimes something mm-hmm. is funny. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, w- I was just thinking about the incredibly bleak and grim, like, 
I think some of the first graphic novels that I read when I was like really becoming a conscious consumer of literature were like Mouse yep. and Barefoot Gen. Yep. And like there's there's very little comedy in a Holocaust story and a story about the aftermath of the bombing of Hiroshima, but like they're like we we don't just have to have those stories. Those stories are very important to have and, you know, and very important to have in libraries where kids can get their hands on them. Yeah. Not yeah. at all angry about any of the things that are going on in the world right now. No, why would you ask such a thing? <laughs> but like but that is not the only serious art. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I think this was also just sort of a boomerang, like, from art school, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, there was no room for levity. I mean, like, everything was very serious and, like, you know, the work I was making was very dark. And part mm -hmm. of that was, you know, my own, <laughs> my own <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but, like, you right. know, occasionally I would come across, like, a photographer and I would be like, this person's work is funny. And mm -hmm. I would be like, why aren't, why do we only look at, like, the really grim, like, why aren't we looking at this? Like, you know, or it was, like, dismissed, you know, like, oh, well, it's, mm -hmm. it's funny, you know, or it's too lighthearted or whatever. And, you know, I think that, like, I think that I hope this trend, I feel like we see it in middle grade and we see it in juvenile graphic novels right now. Things are, are you know, you have such a range. Mm -hmm. And I hope that, like, we see... A, I hope that we see the book market pick up adult graphic novels in the way that they've kind of championed yep. juvenile. Um, but also that, because that's given it the range, you know, the freedom of having, like, this larger marketplace. Mm -hmm. So I hope with adult graphic novels, you know, if you see the book market pick it up as well, it just, you know, allows some of these voices who are already making those stories, like, a bigger platform, more mainstream access, yeah. and more for readers to choose from. Yeah. That's more easily accessible to somebody who's not, like, deep in the comics zone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking of middle grade, uh, this episode will be coming out in middle February. So uh, it is going to be dropping just a little while before Anne of West Philly. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, in October of this past year... You had The Secret Garden on 81st Street. Can you tell us a little bit about both of those? Yeah. Um, so those two are interesting, right? So actually, I was approached by um, an editor mm -hmm. about it. So it was, you know, sort of a work-for-hire situation. But I had a lot of creative control. Nice. Um, so Secret Garden, they had kind of an idea of what they wanted to do already. And, you know, we got to develop it together, which was great. Mm -hmm. um Anna Green Gables is different right so um Secret Garden Anna West Philly Anna of West Philly yes and yeah. Anna of Green Gables retelling yes. <laughs> um Secret Garden was like one of my favorite movies as a kid I liked mm -hmm. the book but there was a movie that came out in the 90s it had Maggie Smith I was all about oh, it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I watched it like a billion times as a kid. The VHS came with a little locket, wore that thing <laughs> everywhere. Um, so Secret Garden I had this like really big attachment to. Mm -hmm. um, and so adapting it was this very personal thing for me. Um, mm -hmm. Also because it's so much about grief and I was contacted about writing it about a, almost exactly a year after my dad passed. Mm -hmm. So it was like this very cathartic like getting in touch with my inner child oh, yeah. processing this loss and you know um i'm immensely proud of that book the work that amber did amber padilla the illustrator incredible um and it was a very different situation because i actually have n i had very little connection to anna green gables as a kid i mean i read it Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't like hate it or anything, but it just wasn't one of those ones that like, I didn't become like an Anne of Green Gables person. I feel like some people mm -hmm. become an Anne of Green Gables person. Whereas I was like, I liked this, but mm -hmm. I am now, you know, getting into an age where all I'm going to read is ghost stuff, which yeah. was then what I'd, I'd 
think I read like H.P. Lovecraft at age 12 and then I was like we're done with books that aren't about things like this yep (laughs) Um, big mood (laughs) so you know I revisited Anne um because I didn't remember as much about it and I reread it and then I was like you know and it's it's nice to talk about this with you because you're you're from Philly so Mm -hmm. like I um I wanted to set it in Philly like I knew, I knew Sea Garden was going to be in New York as part of the original like idea we had discussed, but mm-hmm. and it was a, there was a lot more room to like move around. But the reason I wanted to set it in Philly is because obviously the original author loved where she was from. So mm-hmm. much of that book is about just like loving that that environment and the, yeah, the nature sure. and the beauty and all this stuff. And I was like, there's no way I can set this anywhere except. The place where I'm from and the place that I love, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> um, and so I was like, I want to set it in Philly. Um, I set it in West Philly because I thought there would be, there's so many beautiful Victorian houses in West Philly. I thought there was a mm-hmm. really good Green Gables kind of analog, you know? I was yeah. like, there's houses of Green Gables in West Philly. <laughs> um, so, you know, working on both of them was really fun Mm -hmm. um i really loved the experience of working on them both because i felt like there's a reason that these stories persist right like there's a reason that we're still getting Anne retellings like there's that show that's Mm -hmm. out right now it's really popular you know you see a retelling of it you know every couple years you see an Anne retelling secret garden you know i mean kids are still reading it Mm -hmm. um there's a reason they persist like I think that, you know, obviously when we dive into the Western canon, there's a lot that's problematic and should be (laughs) poked and prodded at and reassessed. But, you know, there is a reason beyond just we all had to read it in school for why some of these stories carry on. There's like there's some Mm -hmm. kernel of the human condition in them, right? So, you know, Secret Garden, I really drilled down to being like, this is a story about grieving. Like, mm-hmm. the story about grief. In the original, she loses her parents. Uh, Lord Craven has lost his sister, his wife. You know, his son is tr- has vague Victorian consumption or whatever right, in the yeah. original. <laughs> Some kind of Victorian wasting disease. And, you know, it's a story about grief. And that's probably mm-hmm. why, you know, and it's about finding peace and acceptance and, like, you know something to live for and work towards after this enormous period of change, which, Mm -hmm. God, we're all in it right now, aren't we? (laughs) You know? So, like, with Anne, I was like, this isn't necessarily even a story about what she's doing. It's about Anne. Like, Mm -hmm. it's about this character and, like, how she's different and unique in a way that, like, we've all felt like at some point, I think, you know, she's she gets really flustered really easily or, like, frustrated when things aren't going her way and, like, mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't understand all these rules that society is putting on her. And mood, I was mood, like... Mood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was like, you know, we're going to take it, we're going to put it in Philly because then I feel like I can actually talk about, like, her love for the place authentically. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to, like, make Anne just really the focus, you know? So, like... Mm-hmm. She goes through similar story beats to the book, like the original book, but like really it's a character study in my right, eyes yeah. because I was like, what are you getting out of reading Anne of Green Gables? You're getting a relationship with Anne. Like you right. want to be her friend, you know, like you want to like be in her world and be able to be like she is for a little while, like carefree and like. Mm-hmm. I mean, the book is called Anne of Green Gables, not... Green Gables and this, there's this Anne girl. Yeah. Green Gables featuring Anne. <laughs> the remix. Um, you know, like, yeah, so working on both of them was a really fun thought exercise. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, like, it's funny because I never thought of myself as someone who would write for kids. You know, mm-hmm. like, go back to let young ivy know that it's okay to be light like uh-huh. young ivy know that it's all right to write for kids <laughs> mm-hmm. but i really like writing for kids because i feel like 
you can give them like touch points, access points, you know, like something they can go back to and, and, you know, and that's like absolutely corny to say that I want to (laughs) write books that like I would have needed as a kid, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, I do like, absolutely. We we write the things we like. Yeah. Like that's, (laughs) that's the point of if you're, if you can't create things that you enjoy as an artist, like why are you being an artist? Yeah, then you're just torturing yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Go back, just rewinding it on back to me in art school. <laughs> just in it for the strong coffee and the French cigarettes and yeah. the beret and Just the in suffering. it for the no money. Yeah. I'm just doing this just to have no money. <laughs> for funsies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I would... I could absolutely keep talking about this for literally ever. (laughs) Uh, But we are getting towards the end of the show. And before we get going, uh, we've talked a whole lot about the stuff that you've got out. Uh, Obviously, Bountiful Garden is just finishing up right now. And Anne will be out in March. Secret Garden is already out. What are some things you've been reading or watching or listening to that you're really into and you want to get other people pumped up for oh man (laughs) um (laughs) so i was in like a reading slump for a super long time and then i just like i busted through it and i read like a ton of books recently and i feel like everyone has been good (laughs) um i read the library of the dead um Mm -hmm. that book was great um it was one of those moments where I read it and I was just like, yeah, I want to make something like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I really loved that. Uh, I tried, so like, I joined TikTok recently um, mm-hmm. because I guess you have to now. And <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. It makes me feel 10,000 years old. Um, but I just I send like, queer memes to my friends. Yeah, that's all that's, I do. I like. I've trained it to show me baby armadillos and ch- chihuahuas, but sometimes it shows me books because I like post about books, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So I finally read like um, <laughs> my year of rest and relaxation um, by Otessa Mashveg. Beg? I don't know how to pronounce her name. Oh. And it's funny because I had read Eileen a couple years ago because she kept getting comp mm-hmm. Shirley Jackson, who's my favorite author of all time. And I was like, I'm going to read this. And then I was like, eh, hot and cold on Eileen. But I did actually like my year of rest and relaxation as like a satirical piece. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I talked about the comics I've been reading. Tide Song was great. Um, Magic Fish was great. Uh, I'm reading Witch Hat Atelier, which is, like, fantastic and so beautiful. And if you want to give somebody something like Harry Potter, but you don't want to give them Harry Potter anymore for turf reasons, I really recommend Witch Hat Atelier. Very, like, witch school vibes, but it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, I gave it to my 11-year-old sister. She was super into it. So it's, like, definitely okay for, like, a, a younger reader. But I know adults who are super into it, too. Um, watching-wise, I'm trash. I'm a trash person. I think that anyone who follows me on Twitter knows I'm a little garbage raccoon who watches mostly Bravo and The Bachelor. (laughs) Um, but, um, we just finished Yellow Jackets, and it's as good as everybody says it is. Um, and if you like spooky stuff, uh... Then I I highly recommend it. Also, it's got teens being bad, which is one of my favorite things. Love love bad teens. <laughs> Fabulous, Ivy. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Where can our listeners find you? Being uh, garbage with garbage things. Yeah. If you want to hear me talk about garbage, <laughs> um, if you want to hear me just be a little trash person with no taste, <laughs> um, I'm on. It's true. I've just given up on having taste. Like, I used to pretend I had taste, and now the I'm taste just, like, is overrated. You know, whatever. Just call me the modern John Waters. Just bring me the trash. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, I'm on like every platform at, at Ivy Noel, I-V-Y-N-O-E-L-L-E. I was blessed with kind of a unique first name, uh, com- middle name combo, which has allowed me to get that screen name on pretty much every website. Mm-hmm. Um, except for TikTok. Somebody already had it. So I'm on that at Ivy Well, Get it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm also at IvyNoelWeird.com. People can always get in touch through my contact form there. Fantastic. Well, Ivy, once again, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It's been just amazing, (laughs) fantastic. Uh, You know, I mean, I'm always like, I'm always down to clown with a friend on audio and make other people listen to it. (laughs) Uh, And like, especially like people I've known forever. It's great to just be a couple of little gremlins and like talk about shit we like. Uh, so thank you again so much for coming on the show. Yeah. No, thank you for having me. This is probably like the most candid podcast interview I'll ever get because we've <laughs> known each other since we were like children. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, relaxed. I'm having a it's, good time. <laughs> it's the good shit. <laughs> Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbizniacs. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.